This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're in the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots more to discuss. We're going to be talking a little bit more about relationships and especially about cheating couples. And uh, you'll be surprised that they're actually having sex. And also we're going to be talking about some personality uh, dare I say, personality disorders, um, personalities that make life and relationships a little bit more challenging. And it's a really sad uh, type of a personality disorder because you think they're one thing and they're actually another. Also going to be talking a little bit about menopause and some of the issues that happen for women, some new research uh, that is out there about testosterone. Um and also some sex education and literacy for online porn for our teenagers. Did I just say that? But first and foremost, I have Ava on the line. And uh, hello, Ava. Good evening, Linda. I always enjoy your show whenever I get the chance to listen. Did you mean Maureen? Or were you thinking? I'm sorry, Maureen. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you oh think? Did I sound like Linda Steele? I. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. Are you kidding me? Yeah, my, my mistake. No, not um, at all. So something touched me very deeply. You were talking about depression, which I suffer from, mm-hmm. and my GP did say exactly that, to go out and find something to volunteer at that I was very passionate in. Great. And so long story short, I ended up turning it into a small business for myself, a little niche in the, uh, in the market of elderly people and going in and visiting with them. So wow. It's uh, fantastic. It's Oh, done, done mental wonders for me. I enter those doors and greet everybody, and I just love it. I, I, I'm really high at work. It's, it's wonderful. That's fantastic. So may I ask you, are you have you been prescribed uh, prescription medication for your depression? Yes, I have, yeah. And are you still taking that as well? Um, I, yes and no. I mean, you know, I have highs and I have lows. and Uh-huh. Um, so I it, haven't found the right thing, but, um, my, my business is everything to me and, and, uh, and I just love them all dearly. So were you unemployed be- when you were, when you had that, uh, clinical depression? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I have fibromyalgia. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, my husband had a car accident and then we had a son with a rare kidney disorder. Oh. Anyway, marriage broke down and, um, while that was happening, I was feeling uh, worthless and, yeah, you know, like, what am I doing here? And right, yeah, then of I course. started visiting with elderly people, and it's wonderful. And, and I so, have a wait list, is so. this gainful, gainful employment? Are you it, being paid uh, now? Well, it is. It's less than part time for me because I make it work for me, and the yeah, hours of course. That work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, one could make it into gainful employment. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic! And what? So you go and visit seniors? I do. That's, I do. That's yeah. amazing. You know, social integration, so for you and for them, it is the number one uh, determinant for longevity. Yeah, it's wonderful, and it's wonderful for families who can't visit their loved ones or they they live out of town. And I decided to, um, you know, think what would I want in a senior companion, and I thought, boy, I'd like a report. So every visit I give whatever family member hires me and whoever they want to see, see the reports to, I do that, and I like I take them on the visit, like the whole thing. So any concerns, you know, that I might have, um, you know, I've right. that, and, and and you know, lessens the guilt for the ones that aren't able to visit with their, their of course mother, father, uncle. Of course, and sometimes yeah. seniors just need a little bit of support. They might need 
you know, to, to ensure that they're getting their lunch, for example. Exactly. Yeah, wow. and I take them out to the parks and. Really, and do you go oh. into their homes and do this, or do you go into senior centers? Sorry. Both. 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 Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just fantastic. Oh, I, I, yeah, what a great suggestion. I'm glad you brought it up, and it just touched my heart. And oh, I'm so that's glad my you. Life. So I'm I so glad to say you... to people out there that yes, find something you're passionate in and volunteering. It doesn't pay the bills, but it sure makes you feel good, and you just um, you never know where it's going to lead. That's so great. And did you have a passion for seniors? Did you always, like, some people like kids, or they like seniors? Yeah. I did, but I yeah. didn't realize how much Wow! until I started volunteering with them. And then good I started looking back in my life, and my grandparents, you know, lived in a different country, so I'm sure somewhere in the psyche that's fulfilling that need. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's, it's good all around. Like, I have, I have no complaints. The odd time I get people who say, oh, your reports are too long. <laughs> um, so it's, it's yeah, it, it's fantastic, you know, and it, it's great for the other people who are at the care homes that are working because, you know, I'm part of a care team, I feel, and we're all working towards the same thing. And if I can uh, make a senior, you know, just live in the moment and feeling worthy and, uh, it, you know, I'm such a giver that that's been the amazing thing for me is that the seniors give back. That's just, wonderful. Uh, you bring up a yeah. great point. You said you're such yeah. a giver, and often people can be get depleted because, you know, for whatever reason, they can be a people pleaser or they can want this constant affirmation, so they're always doing these things. Yeah. But it's nice that you've turned that around, and I really appreciate yeah. your call, Ava, yeah. and sharing that story okay. with us and, and uh, living in the moment. We'll be living yeah. in the moment. Okay, Maureen. <laughs> All right. Thank you so <laughs> thank much, you Ava. For, no problem. All, All right. right. Take you take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. I love when people share their stories um, because it empowers other people. Uh, you know, and may inspire somebody else out there to get up off your duff and just go out and volunteer. I know it's hard. You know, I say that, and it's really difficult for people. When I hear how people describe what depression feels like, I understand. Knock on wood, I haven't had it, um, so I, I can't speak to it. But uh, the descriptions that I have heard, everything from it feels like pulling one foot um, out of quicksand after the other, and they're just dragging along, and, and they can't get going, they can't do anything, they can't make a list, they can't decide what to do, you know, that day. They've gotten so depleted. That's actually my word. Uh, after listening to so many people over the years describe to me their their condition of depression, that I felt a, a more appropriate word was depleted because they just seemed to be winded. They had nothing left to do or to give. And uh, and so, but to give to others is very helpful. I do home visits sometimes in addition to the Skype visits. And I was at this really large uh, assisted living place, which seemed to have 30 floors and, you know, like probably 30 or 40 units on every floor. So a lot of people, and they actually only have one bus to transport people to the mall or to the doctor. And so it's like, wow, you know, they could use Uber over there. I know that's a controversial subject, but they sure could use a driver over there. I mean, it could be an idea. Um, it could be a good uh, business idea for somebody if you want it, because I like that idea of volunteering, but then turning it in to uh, making a profit, earning earning a living. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, we all do volunteer work, and, you know, you decide how much and at, at what time. So I, I really love that story. 
Um, anyway, we're going to get down to a little bit more of the nitty gritty. I've had some great emails from you, and I just wanted to read an email that I received from a young woman. Um, here we go. Hey, Maureen, I thoroughly enjoyed your presentation on TED Talks and thought you may be of some help. I'm not sure if you give out free advice. Yes, I do. <laughs> but I figured I would at least reach out in hopes of receiving a response. My boyfriend and I started dating over a year ago. He is 26, and we have maybe had sex about a dozen times. It is hard for him to get an erection and actually finish. He has gone to see a doctor, and they have tested his testosterone levels, including his free testosterone level. The results came back within the normal range, but at the lower end of the spectrum. They prescribed Viagra for him, but it is too expensive to continue, and it does not always help. He went back to the doctor, and they said it may be mental. They have not suggested any additional tests, and he is giving up on our sex life. He has had depression as well, which has been getting worse since our sex life is non-existent. He said he doesn't even want to try to have sex anymore because it has become more of a chore. Please let me know if you have any suggestions as to what you might think. Since seeing your TED Talk, I have become more worried because you said it may be linked to cardiovascular health. However, if it is mental, how does one overcome that? I tell him our relationship is fine and sex is not important. But I know it will be difficult to continue a healthy relationship without ever having those intimate moments. Thank you for your help. Sally. Sally, I mean, it's a great email. You know, um, one thing that concerns me is that you're telling him that your relationship is fine and sex is not important. I, I just don't, I mean, I understand you want to comfort him and make him feel better, but, you know, you're not actually being truthful to yourself. And so that's going to be a problem because the very next line you say that it is important. So, um, you know, my response to Sally uh, would be, yes, it will be very difficult to have a healthy relationship without intimacy. And many things affect intimacy. And depression certainly affects intimacy. Erectile dysfunction affects about 25% of men under the age of 40. We associate this with older men, but it certainly can affect men under the age of 40. The causes of erectile dysfunction vary widely and can be psychological, neurological, or due to lifestyle issues. There can be uh, some damage in the pelvic area from bike riding or something, mountain bike riding. ED can also be the result of side effects of particular medications. That said, I, you know, it. It sounds to me like her boyfriend needs a sexual health assessment at the very least. And I, because I couldn't even venture a guess without gathering more information by speaking to him. It is unlikely that it is related to heart health at that age, but he should have a full physical exam to rule out medical conditions such as diabetes. Depression is definitely a contributing factor. I don't know if he's on any medication. What is the root of his depression? Does he work? Is he in school? Is he an adult child of an alcoholic? Does he drink himself? Does he use any other substances? Does he smoke pot? Does he use cocaine? What does he do for his depression in terms of treatment? Does he exercise? Does he volunteer? (laughs) And what is his weight? That's also important. Does he have a bend in his penis? A lot of guys do, and that may be a sign of Peyronie's disease, um, especially when he tries to get an erection. Has he had a pelvic injury? Does he watch a lot of porn? And and keeping in mind, you know, I mean, again, the prescription pad, just let's, let's write this kid some Viagra without really knowing what's going on here. 
Um, a man has to be psychologically aroused for Viagra to work. You also have to try it five to six times, and it works best in a testosterone-rich environment. His testosterone level was within the normal range, not concerned there. It doesn't matter that it was on the low end. You hear that about thyroid. People are like, oh, I have thyroid disease because my thyroid, my TSH was in the low normal. You can have it in the low normal. It's still normal. In order to overcome this, if it is, as she says, mental or psychological, as I would say, one needs to understand the reason. Does he have anxiety along with his depression? Performance anxiety, that's very common. She cannot fix or save him. This is his responsibility. It is he who needs to come to the table uh, to get the help there. And um, so really, that's uh, that would be the advice that I would offer. And um, and she did come back. And so uh, she's going to go off to a urologist or an endocrinologist because he, she also told me that it he goes to the gym all the time, but it's difficult for him to build muscle. So there may be some other issues going on there. I recommended a an endocrinologist. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunny Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I'm a sexual health educator, registered nurse. I also have a clinical practice where I see lots of different types of people. Uh, I have a very interesting job. It's never boring, let me tell you. Uh, it's it's so multifaceted, and I'm I'm involved in so many different aspects of health and and sexual health. Uh, keeps me going. Anyway, um, I see lots of different personalities in my clinical practice. And, you know, um, there's there's one particular one that's just, you know, you might not believe it because, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody who is boastful and, you know, wants all this attention and is an egomaniac may not feel so great about himself. So there is this sort of egomaniac inferiority complex type of individual. An egomaniac is someone who has an obsession with him or herself. They have uncontrolled impulses, have self-delusions about their greatness, their wonder. They often feel unappreciated by others and will take great strides to make themselves happy over the happiness of others. This is the person who takes the last chicken leg. (laughs) This is the person who arrives to your house, you know, with a bottle of wine and is like, look at the wine I got for you. Okay, that kind of person is just like, yeah, just get in here. Give me the wine, get in. Um, but they also have an inferiority complex. You can, you, you've heard people say they're, you know, they're pretty insecure, um, especially when they're this boastful type that is sort of bragging about themselves when deep down underneath they don't feel great about themselves. And in fact, they have a feeling of inadequacy that is both unrealistic and prevalent in their life. So their inferiority, their lack of worthiness is not necessarily real. So that makes it very difficult. But this can be caused by actual or assumed inferiority in some aspect of a person's life. So somebody with an inferiority complex at work, for example, may feel like they're, you know, because they didn't finish university um, and somebody else has a PhD, so they might feel that, that because they're uncertain about their education, that they may not be able to contribute as much as somebody else. So to compensate for this inferiority complex, these individuals may become aggressive. And so that's a massive turnoff. So it's a really sad situation. These people that come up, you know, like pounding their chest and feeling bad about themselves on the inside, you know, it's a really difficult personality to deal with because it's it's sad. And there are so many uh, signs that somebody struggles with being an egomaniac and has an inferiority complex. So one of them is that they exaggerate. 
They're also incredibly sensitive, so they get they get offended really quickly. You could make a joke and they're insulted. And you know, but you could make that same joke to somebody standing next to them and they would get it and they would laugh. They can never laugh at themselves because God forbid that would make them actually feel worse about themselves. And so they don't like you doing that either. They hate losing. They have to win at all costs. It doesn't matter, even if it costs them something important in their life, like their spouse, for example. They're always fishing for compliments in this sort of, uh, you know, indirect way. They're just, you know, some way they want you to uh, to build them up. And they also have trouble paying attention to others, and they may ridicule others when they are paying attention to them. So, you know, sometimes we, we all exaggerate, of course. You might want to do that when you tell a story or a joke or whatever. But but in most situations, exaggerating isn't a good idea. These are people who over-exaggerate the amount of money that they make, um, details of an event. Um, and so they want to overemphasize their, overemphasize their worth to other people. And um, so egomaniacs and those with an inferiority complex ridicule others and put them down. And that makes them feel better about themselves. But the judgment is more a case of trying to draw judgment away from themselves and placing it on to somebody else. And so they feel that they are personally defective, that they are not worthy. Um, And so this is, you know, this makes it a very difficult personality to Um, have good relationships with, have relationships with friends. And it's often the case that those people who are struggling with addiction have aspects of this personality. The combination of negative behaviors can influence a person to begin to self-medicate, for example, or to abuse alcohol or to relax or stop thinking as much about troublesome situations. Anyway, it's a tough one. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here. We are in the final strokes of the program. You can still call me, one 399 That's the number to call. You can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I have this interesting email from a gentleman. Hi, Maureen. I was listening to your show recommending the womanizer and massage oil. My wife and I have been married for 19 years, three great kids, We've dabbled in a variety of open-minded scenes over the years, like MMF and FFMs, when things get a bit boring in the bedroom. Things are getting a little boring in the bedroom now. We've never found a need for toys, but we do talk about them when having some sexy pillow talk. The clitoral suckling device that you mention that can make a woman experience an orgasm in less than a minute seems way too fast for us. I enjoy a third person pleasuring my wife while I'm kissing her. It's so sexy. So for now, I think we'll pass on the toys. However, we would love a recommendation for a nice sensual lube that doesn't get sticky or dry out. Um, we've heard oil-based ones can cause female infections and the water-based ones dry out. Any recommendations? Um, yes, uh, first of all, the clitoral suckling device that I have spoken of, the womanizer, uh, it's not just about, uh, you know, first of all, only about a third of women experience orgasm, 70% require clitoral stimulation. Um, so this is not about uh, uh, a man deciding this for a woman. This is about a woman deciding this for herself. 
Um, and also in terms of time, I probably said, you know, perhaps I'm that egomaniac type who's, who used exaggeration. <laughs> you can use exaggeration and just be a normal personality, whatever normal is. Um, but, you know, perhaps I said, you know, I don't even remember saying in a minute because I can't tell you how long it's going to take you, but it's going to be faster. Or for a lot of women, I use it as a therapeutic device in my clinical practice. To, you know, um, I prescribe it for female patients. And then they tell me that, you know, especially women who've never experienced an orgasm before, they will experience one or women who've taken a long time to experience one as long as their vagina is healthy, um, they it will take a lot less time. But the other thing about the this device, this particular device, is that it lends itself to multiple orgasms and variable orgasms. So it's not just about the time. So I might reconsider that my friend. And as for uh, nice sensual lube, uh, the ones I recommend are, are made by pink or um, for a woman who is in the perimenopausal years, you may want a, a silicone based one um, because that is um, more, um, it's actually just a bit softer on uh, maybe a thinner, drier uh, vagina. Um, so that's, those are some of the ones that I would recommend as well. So anyway, it's interesting. You kind of went um, inviting other people into your bedroom uh, versus a discomfort with toys that I notice here. But you know what? Whatever floats your boat, it is up to you. It is your private uh, relationship. It is your intimate relationship. And, you know, whatever you do, I'm good with. Um, except this. <laughs> Infidelity. Not good. Um well, there are certain circumstances, I suppose. Uh, couples with a good sex life are more likely to cheat because they want more of it with anyone that piques their interest, the study finds. This piqued my interest because you wouldn't think that couples who are having great sex in a relationship uh, would be experiencing infidelity. But in fact, that's been considered immunity to an extramarital affair. But no, new research has found that having a good sex life may make one's partner more, not less, likely to stray, a study suggests. So, you know, here's the thing. A lot of women will say to me, and more so women, you know, really, rarely do I get people in my clinical practice, rarely do I get guys coming in unless they are having an affair and then they find out that their wife is having an affair. I mean, I shouldn't say I never do. I do, but mostly guys are like, they think she's having an affair and they, she might be, but then she said no. So they believe them. Denial is a drug, but so it's not as common, but I get a lot of women in, you know, very upset, very emotional. Um, we were having sex in our relationship and I have to say, I've always looked a little askance at it. Like, Oh really? Like, well, when last year? Uh, so, but apparently I'm wrong. <laughs> Uh, and uh, as are a lot of other people out there. But researchers at Florida State University found men with a more attractive wife were less likely to cheat than women with a more attractive husband. Go figure, huh? Um, but people who really enjoy sex are more likely to be unfaithful because they seek out sex with more partners, plain and simple. Doesn't matter whether they are having sex in their marriage or not. Has that happened to you? Is that something that you've experienced? How would you feel about about this? This, According to the study, they also found attractive women were slightly more likely to remain faithful than less attractive women. How about that? Because you would think that it would be the attractive women, which is very subjective, uh, that would be cheating all over the place. 
but in men, being more attractive was more likely to lead to straying. Maybe they're trying to um, build themselves up. Who knows? Maybe they have that personality, that egomaniac with the inferiority complex. And this research came from, or these findings came from a wide uh, birth of research into whether you can predict whether someone is likely to cheat in a relationship. The other thing is, you ever notice that you're, you know, if you're out for dinner or whatever? I mean, mostly these days, people are just looking at their at their phones. I couldn't believe how many people were looking at their phones in the hot tub at the ski resort. <laughs> like there were like eight people in the hot tub and they're all looking at their phones like for, you know, the whole time. Anyway, there, there was, I didn't even know if anybody was together in there or not. You couldn't tell. Um, but, you know, it's like, aren't you worried anymore? Is the addiction to iPhone so bad that you're not even worried that it might get wet, that you might drop it in into the hot tub? Anyway, whatever. I'm not judging once again. Um, so this is interesting, and I think this is something that um, we need to think about. So if your gaze is lingering on attractive alternative mates, you are more likely to cheat and the marriages are more likely to fail. This was interesting because it was actually, um, it didn't, they, they didn't require a long time of gaze between cheaters and faithful people. In fact, it was like fractions of a second in, in, a dif- in the difference. Um, so a person who looked at an attractive person for just a few hundred milliseconds longer was 50% more likely to cheat than someone who stopped looking at the attractive picture. Uh, anyway, so as well as avoiding looking longingly at others, the researchers from this study found that faithful people also downgraded how attractive they viewed others. And they said that the faithful people, when asked to evaluate how good-looking other people were, gave lower scores than people who went on to cheat. Anyway, you could say that for the faithful people, the grass is not always greener. Uh, so anyway, I think that's interesting because infidelity is a big issue in relationships. And there are a number of reasons that it can happen. It can be, you know, just a a time when a person isn't feeling loved and respected, you know, in their relationship. Maybe they're not feeling that, you know, maybe they're not feeling it. Maybe they're struggling. You've been having conflict for such a protracted period of time. And then somebody comes along and it's like, hey, I still got it. And you might go for it. Well, it just depends how attractive you are, apparently. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about menopause, of course, that time in life. I was, I had a patient in my clinical practice and she actually said, this kind of brings it all together. She, I did this TED talk, which I think I've told you all about 11 million times. It's had 11 million views. (laughs) Anyway, um, so often people will email me and say, or come to my clinical practice and like, I saw your TED talk and spoke to me and blah, blah, blah. And one thing that, that has been said frequently is women will say, you know, you talked a little bit more about how, uh, women have low sexual desire. Well, I'm in a relationship, they they say, where my man doesn't want to have sex with me. And that can be even more hurtful. So this one particular patient that came into my clinical practice this week um, told me that her husband had this elitist job. Now, here you go. I'm not going to tell you what the job is, but I didn't have a clue 
that it was an elitist job. And I'm like, oh, is that a prestigious job? You know, like, <laughs> I'm no schlep, but <laughs> but I had no idea. You know, if I gave it some more thought, I would think, oh, yeah, there, I guess there's not that many of them. So I guess that makes it elitist. But I really don't care about elitism or, or prestige or anything like that. I just think any job is good, quite frankly. I think you, you, you know, you honor any work. Any work is good work, is what I say. So I didn't really think that. But this guy was a bit puffed up because of his job. Well, apparently he had that egomaniac personality with the inferiority complex. And so he lost his job because he was acting like a jerk at this prestigious at this prestigious job that he used to have. And so that led to depression, of course, because the guy is really, you know, aligns with his job that that makes the man. Uh, and also um, he then started to gain weight and he started to get depression and now he has no interest in sex. And so she's feeling terrible about this. And, and so it's led to conflict in the relationship. She still loves him very much. She still wants to be very sexual with him. He just turns her down left, right and center. Um, but also she was starting to have some uh, issues with vaginal dryness. And so lots of the treatment is typically a personal moisturizer, um, which is, which I think is actually better than a lube. If you routinely moisturize your vagina, I think that's actually better than lubrication. You don't need lubrication unless you want it for added friction or, or something. Uh, slip sliding away, whatever. Slip sliding away. Okay, um, I am singing tonight. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, there's a, some research out that shows that testosterone cream may actually benefit women with vaginal dryness. I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I guess we're in the final stroke of the program. Here it is. Hopefully you're getting a few strokes tonight yourselves. Um, we're talking about porn. Porn is here to stay, okay? Porn has evolved. Uh, porn's been around for a while, and it has evolved. Uh, one of the big issues I see in my clinical practice is live chats. Many women view that as, um, or porn with live models online. So when many women, for them, it's a deal breaker. That's it. They, the relationship is over. The marriage is done. Um, many women don't believe that their male partners view porn. Uh, many men don't think their female partners view porn. Men and women both view porn. And our teenagers are viewing porn as well. On average, boys are around the age of 13 and girls around the age of 14 when they first see pornography, according to research that was done out of Indiana University's media school, and the author is Bryant Paul. He's done a number of studies on porn content and adolescent and adult viewing habits. In a 2008 UNH or University of New Hampshire survey, 93% of male college students and 62% of female students said they saw online porn before they were 18. Most females weren't seeking it out, according to this research. 35% of the males said they had watched it 10 or more times during adolescence. Adolescence, it's the or more that is the operative, that are the operative words there. So I was interested, uh, I learned about this when I was back in Boston, about a pilot program that is going on in Boston. It's important, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy around this, um, about sex education, quite frankly. Uh, in our schools. It's important that it is done. It's important to educate about gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, body images. It's, these are important aspects of sexuality. The, this does not, should not 
be put under the rug. We need to teach kids about healthy relationships, dating violence, LGBTQI issues. And it's done best through group discussion, role playing. Um, You know, we need to talk about consent is so important or what consent isn't. Um, You know, so the kids are watching porn. That's the bottom line. It's every, most kids have an iPhone these days, as long as they've, you know, hit their second birthday. Um, You see kids walking around with their iPhones. It's so easy to access. It's a part of life. So there is a new uh, program that's been put on by Boston University School of Public Health in association with uh, public funding. Um, and it's a porn literacy program. It started in 2016, and it is a pilot study. And it basically teaches adolescents how to analyze porn. And I think that's important because some of the messages that porn delivers are not real world. They're not actually what relationships are like. Many kids are seeing um, imagine at 14, it's the only education you're getting because they've decided to cut the programs in the public schools and you're not comfortable talking about sex. And so your son is shown some porn. Of course, he didn't go there. His friend showed him. So let's blame the neighbor's child. <laughs> of course, I love that. Um, so <laughs> never my kid. It never was. No, <laughs> it always was my kid. <laughs> Always. Um, But anyway, I digress. Um, So they look at uh, some porn online. It may be aggressive. It's typically aggressive these days. Uh, A lot of the porn is flipping women around and performing anal sex without their consent because that's what they see. This is what these kids have reported in some of these classes. They may uh, be looking up, they may mistype a word like fishing and fisting might come up and they, they may see some fisting videos. And so as a 14-year-old, you may or may not have had sex yet, but you're curious. And so then you may start searching and you may land on one of the many porn sites. And then depending on which porn site you you have landed upon, then they will start sending you some other um, websites all around the world. Um, and so uh, you might find yourself on Pornhub, the most popular of the group that has 80 million visitors a day. And a lot of them are your children, your teenagers, your adolescents. This has more traffic, just to give you an idea, than Pinterest, Tumblr, and PayPal, okay? More visitors a day, 80 million to Pornhub. So we have to accept the fact that our children, our our adolescents, our teenagers, I call them children, um, are, but they're adolescents typically, are viewing porn. And what they're viewing depends partly on the algorithms and the clips that they've clicked on in the past. So along with stacks of videos on the opening page, there's a a million other categories, teen, anal, blonde, girl on top, girl on girl, ebony, milf. And that can take them to millions of videos. The, The clips tend to be short they tend to be low on production value. And, and so these classes are designed to help kids analyze the messaging to actually pull it apart and, and, t- and talk to them about things like how much the women were paid. Did the woman look like she was enjoying sex? A lot of the messages are she doesn't want sex, and then in the end she's enjoying it. So that's what they think it's supposed to be. So there are so many messages that are incorrect. Some of these narratives are inappropriate, inaccurate, and this is what is teaching our children, our adolescents, how to have 
sex, it's, it can get them into lots of trouble, into, um, a, it can make them think that aggressive sex is the only type of sex. Many of the kids in this particular group were shocked to find out how little the women were paid. Um, and that this is one industry where men are actually paid less than women, but men can have a longer career in this uh, in this career. So there are so many things. I mean, if you if you looked into it, some of it is just even a little too vulgar for me to even talk about on this show. Some of the things that these kids are seeing um, in terms of um, you know men and the number of men ejaculating on women's faces. That's that's termed facials. You know, a facial is something that a lot of women have. A lot of girls might think they're going to have a facial, and they may look that up, and it may come up as a porn site. So it's, um, you know, this can be very dangerous, and it's difficult to know how this translates into behavior, but it can't be good. So it's it's important that we talk about this. It's important that um, we get information out, like 20% of 18 to 19-year-old Females had tried anal sex, um, you know, and so these kids are doing certain things. They need education around it. They need to know how to be safe. Um, and, and in a Swedish study of nearly 416-year-old girls, the percentage of girls who had tried anal sex doubled if they watched pornography. So these are some of the things that we are seeing that are coming out of, of studies like this. Um, it doesn't show necessarily a causal effect, but there's a correlation. And girls who are more sexually curious may be drawn to porn. And some girls may view anal sex as a safer alternative to vaginal sex because of the decreased risk of pregnancy. So this is an important subject. We need to have this conversation. Um, We need to teach our teenagers about masculinity, femininity, sexuality, sexual expression, intimacy, and power, and healthy power in relationships. Well, time is up for now. But uh, remember, go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca. You can follow me on Twitter, at backthenumber2thebedroom. This is a free download on iTunes, so you can go to iTunes tunes and google the sunday night health show or type in the sunday night health show and it'll come up in case you missed part of it and uh thank you so much andrew for another bang up job on the on the uh, tech production and uh remember when you stumble on this gravel road of life make it part of your dance i'm maureen mcgrath you're listening to the sunday night health show You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.